Welcome, everyone. <clears throat> uh, this past week, I visited, after a long absence, I visited the Palmer Museum. And after my experience there, um, I realized that it was a good thing for me to stop by the museum and spend a couple of hours there. I felt that uh, visiting, uh, visiting the museum and uh, spending time with the paintings and the pottery, which I particularly enjoy, uh, was actually restorative to my spirit um, because it, it showed me what human beings are capable of. They're capable of creating beauty, uh, creating mystery, um, moving us in deep ways. And I remember, of course, going to concerts, um, pr pretty much in da dance performances and such, and uh, how art is very much comparable to what we do here, which is that it, art really doesn't have any practical purpose um, except to uplift us and to touch us in some deep way. And we tend to, um, there, there are certainly forms of art that are sheer entertainment, maybe not calling them fine art, but um, it occurred to me that, that it would be a good thing to spend more time visiting places which uh, uplift us, which restore us, and which don't really have any, um, you might say, uh, practical purpose except to touch us in some deep way. Um, and that's what we do here. Uh, we could say there are byproducts of this practice which um, are relaxing, which, are, which create peace, which enable us to um, move through the world with equanimity and being able to meet all circumstances with clarity and um, compassion. Um, but those are byproducts of this practice. This practice fundamentally is to simply be present to whatever arises, to practice being alive. And art is very much that way. There's no, you know, when, <laughs> when you're dancing, you're not dancing to get from point A to point B. You're not going anywhere. You're just expressing your vitality, your, your, your beingness, your joy, your, uh, your, your flow, your life force. So similarly, um, there are practical consequences to our practice, but fundamentally the practice is deep and doesn't, you know, only has practical consequences as byproducts of what we're really doing here. 
So um, I've called the Zendo various names, Perfume Factory, uh, Refuge, uh, a refugee camp, uh, and in, in a certain sense it's a museum too. We come here to be uplifted, to be moved, to, to get in touch with something real. So thank you for, um, for visiting uh, this, this place this weekend and uh, sharing, sharing our practice. So I want to move on to the ninth precept, which is uh, the precept of not harboring anger. Probably not applicable, right? Not terribly applicable to us. Just dealing with it because it happens to be on the list. We live in a society, in a culture right now, um, in which anger is quite dominating that emotional a state of mind, state of heart, state of being. Certainly in our politics we see this incredible partisanship um, that is, we say, is dividing our country. People angry with one another for their views, for the ideology, through their, for their language. Uh, there's a lot of vituperative language, uh, rhetoric, uh, and there's, a, there's just a lot of fighting going on. We live in an adversarial culture. Uh, I, I was uh, Aretha Franklin, as you probably all know, just passed away. And uh, the common, and she had pancreatic cancer. And it's very common to talk about uh, one's experience with something like cancer as a battle. She battled cancer for years and years and years. And we said, we're battling this illness. Um, that's a strange way of talking about something that you, we might say one should take care of, uh, should take care of one's illness. Uh, instead of fighting it as, as having an internal battle with something that is, is dis-ease, dis, dis dis-easing us. But this is a very common approach to our life, that we're, we're in some kind of adversarial relationship to things. Uh, certainly in sports, um, um, many years ago, I, my husband at the time and I, did a, a video. Uh, we did a, a video of uh, we called it tailgating Penn State style, and boy, um, did I learn a lot about adversarialism. Uh, it was really, and many people never even people that we videotaped and, and audio taped never even had a child going to Penn State. They didn't go to Penn State, but yet they, they had adopted Penn State as their warrior team. And it, it was like, 
you know, their houses were blue and white, their toilets were blue and white, everything was blue and white. <laughs> it was just all uh, this, we are number one, and I'm number one, and if I identify myself with this warrior team, I can be number one too, and I get there by fighting. And certainly the, you know, the language, if you listen carefully to sports narration, is all about killing them, running over them, shooting them, blasting them. Uh, and so, and of course, children are playing these video games. Are they video, or what are they called? Um, video games? Yeah. Uh, it's just incredible, uh, the kind of violence that uh, they're participating in. So we're, you know, and certainly you go to court, you, you know, you want to separate from your wife or husband, and it's, it's an adversarial procedure. Um, so it's always about, it's about winning and losing, winning and losing, right and wrong. Um, uh, it just pervades our culture. And our cultural adversarialness, our, the cultural partisanship, is certainly a reflection of our individual, our individual sense of always being in some kind of fight that, you know, we're competing. Uh, whether we're competing with someone in our workplace or with someone in our family because we want to show that we, we've succeeded in a way that I know that happened to me. I, I was the only one in my entire family, my extended family, who ever even graduated from high school, no less received a PhD. And I was, I was determined to achieve that, to be ambitious, to show them that, you know, I could be, I could have status and prestige, and there's competition there. Um, so this anger that is referred to in the precept can range from total rage and maybe some of you have either yourself experienced being total, totally enraged and just totally losing it. One of the things that my daughter keeps observing about me is that I never get angry. Uh, well, that's not true. I never, ex never am able to express anger, but as long as you have an ego, you're going to be angry. You're going to have anger. So it can go from, it can go from total rage to resentment. You know, people who walk around with what we say a chip on their shoulders, who are sort of always irritable and are always judgmental and finding things wrong with, with everything. That's a form of anger, a form of aversion, which is one of the three poisons. Or it can be, the anger can be expressed in what we call passive-aggressive behavior. So that it's not obvious that somebody is angry, but they're behaving in a way 
that it would be so much nicer if they could say, I'm really pissed off with you instead of ignoring you, instead of making little remarks, you know, that kind of you can't, you can't decide whether they're um, meant to be mean or whether they're constructive or that's a sort of passive-aggressive behavior that isn't outright, you know, I'm really pissed off at you, but I don't want to have anything to do with you. <laughs> uh, I'm talking behind your back. Uh, that kind of anger that isn't made explicit. So there's that whole range of ways of being angry. Why, why is this one of the precepts? What's wrong with being angry? Well, as I've observed in probably all the precepts, there are two things that the precepts are helping us remember. Number one, that we are all connected. That there's no, we're different, but we're not separate. So that anything that we're feeling is intimately connected, and anything we're thinking, and any way we're being, is intimately connected with everyone else and everything else. So every time we sort of move out of these precepts, we are separating ourselves from others and from the world. And the second thing that the precepts remind us of is that life is happening in the present moment. So if we are moving into a state of anger, we are probably not fully present to what is happening. We're moving into a kind of trance. And many of these uh, um, unwholesome or unhelpful emotional states actually move us into a kind of trance-like state. And I think when you feel that you're angry, it's almost as if you are moving into some kind of trance. It's a kind of intoxicant almost. And that's its connection with being intoxicated. And it actually makes you, anger sometimes makes you feel extremely powerful. And so your ego gets puffed up. And you're feeling either self-righteous or just plain mean. And that, that gives you a sense of power. And it is, when you're angry, sometimes it's called a blind rage. It's a kind of blindness that you're, you're feeling. So anger separates us from others and from the world. And it also takes us out of the moment. Neither of which is very um, wholesome or helpful or skillful. If you think about a baby, probably one of the most self-centered beings, the baby isn't aware, 
particularly of relationships, of things that are happening in the world. The baby is totally involved in its own, even I'm calling it it, <laughs> it's almost, uh, uh, the baby is almost like an animal. And it's not, I don't mean to degrade the baby in that way, but it's totally wrapped up in its own needs. It's unaware of others, except as those others are taking care of it. And so when the baby has need, it's hungry, it's got a safety pin and it's open safety pin in its diaper or something, or its diaper needs to be changed. It's throws and that those needs aren't met, the baby might say throws a tantrum and screams and yells until its needs are met. And I think perhaps you've seen children or infants throw a tantrum. Maybe you've thrown a tantrum too. Can't remember the last time I threw a tantrum, but I'm, I'm sure maybe in private I've thrown a tantrum. But the tantrum only really works if you do it publicly, because then you're really saying, "I, I need something. I, I, you know, my needs aren't being met." And I'm suggesting that even our most subtle forms of anger, like passive-aggressive behavior, or just being pissed off, just feeling that, that tightness, that I know what happens with me, I've noticed, is that my face gets really hot. Uh, and I, I just feel it kind of getting hotter and hotter and hotter. Um, but your anger probably gets expressed in all sorts of other ways. Each of those manifestations of anger is a tantrum. You are throwing a tantrum, but it's being controlled in, in different forms. But it's still basically saying, I'm not getting what I need. Or, I'm not getting what I want. Life is not fulfilling, meeting my expectations. You are not giving me what I need, what I want. What is, is not acceptable. And that is expressed in all sorts of ways. And of course, in our practice, we're practicing accepting what is. And if we notice that we're reacting to what is with anger, it's a sign that we are not being recognized, that our needs are not being met, that our expectations are not being met. And it is a self-centered response to things that we don't like to reality that we don't accept. 
And so this self-centeredness, so anger, feeds our self-centeredness. This doesn't mean that we are never going to experience anger as we practice. That is, as I said, as long as we have an ego, we are going to feel anger. As long as we have a self that needs, that wants, that has demands, that has expectations, that wants to be number one, we are going to be angry. But it's what we do with that anger that really matters. Because this is, this is a precept of not about not being angry, but not dwelling in anger. Not harboring anger so that it becomes a grudge, that it, so it becomes, uh, so we suffer carrying that in us. It's often said in, in Buddhist practice that anger is like holding a, a handful of hot coals and throwing them at somebody. That hurts us first. We're burned by it. By the time it reaches the other person, it's cooled off. That, that person is, doesn't experience it as painfully as we do because we're carrying it. We're carrying it inside of us. Okay, thank you. So I, we, we are not going to have, uh, because we have Oriyoki uh, after walking meditation, we're not going to have time at tea. So I wanted to leave some time. Uh, I'm going to address this, uh, this precept next week as well. But I wanted to have some time for you to ask questions or to offer insights or...